Welcome to First Importance, the official podcast of the preaching and teaching ministries of First Baptist Church, West Memphis, Arkansas. Our prayer is that you will be blessed and encouraged today by this message. If you have your Bibles, would you join me in the book of Philippians in chapter 1? Today we'll be looking at verses 27 through the end of the chapter. This past week, uh, in my own quiet time, and as I have been seeking after the Lord, one of these, uh, a truth from this passage has really been illuminated in my heart, and I want to share just a little bit of that with you and looking at what an incredible privilege it is to say that we are followers of Jesus Christ. What an unspeakable, like we cannot find the right words to communicate to God how grateful we are for the work that he has done in our lives, in our salvation. I mean, stop and think about it. If you've not thought about it this week, stop and think about it right now. If today you are born again, you are a follower of Jesus Christ, at one point in time in your, in your life, you were separated from him. You, the Bible says we were enemies of the cross. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We had earned nothing for ourselves but death. That's our condition. That was our condition prior to coming to know Jesus. And there's nothing that we did to earn his affection or to earn his favorable eye upon us, and yet God in his infinite love looked down upon us, saw our helpless estate, sent his only son, Jesus, to come to this, life, uh, to this earth to live a perfect life and then to take upon his very broad and strong and perfect shoulders the weight of your sin and of my sin. And he died on the cross for us. He took our place. Have you stopped to think today about the sacrifice that was made so that you and I could even be here today somewhat casually coming before the throne? And God forbid that we should come before him with hearts that are casual toward him when we think about the sacrifice that was made, few words can live up to it. But there's a song that I've often sung and heard uh, my, my wife sing especially, written by Charity Gale, the song, Thank You, Jesus, for the Blood. The words bring tears to my heart even as I think about them. The first verse, she says, I was a rich I remember who I was. I was lost. I was blind. I was running out of time. Sin separated. The breach was far too wide. But from the far side of the chasm, you had me in your sight. So you made a way across the great divide, left behind heaven's throne to build it here inside. There the cross you paid the debt I owed, broke my chains, freed my soul. For the first time I had hope in the chorus, thank you, Jesus, 
for the blood applied. Thank you, Jesus, it has washed me white. Thank you, Jesus, you have saved my life, brought me from the darkness into glorious light. As we reflect on the great privilege that we have to be believers and the incredible sacrifice that was made so that we might call upon him not just as Lord, but also as Father. We think about this text, and we think about how we are to react to such a sacrifice. And so we pick up our theme of joy today in the gospel, in the book of Philippians, chapter 1 and verse 27. Hear now the word of the Lord. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Would you pray with me, please? Father, you know my inabilities today and my own weakness. And I pray that uh, through my weakness, your power may be and your strength may be perfected to your people here today. For those who are lost, I pray that today they would come to know you and see your worth. But Father, for those who are believers here today, I pray that we would heed the words of Paul and of you today, that we would only do this one thing, that we would live our lives in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. It's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. We're really beginning to get into the meat of the text in our uh, passage today. And so far as we've been exploring the theme of joy in the book of Philippians, we have seen Paul introduce himself, reminding them of who he is. We've seen him praying for the Philippian church, giving thanks for the Philippian church, lifting them up in prayer, asking God that God would fill them with his spirit and use them for his glory. After having uh, penned this prayer for the Philippian church, he then begins to give a report about his own life and circumstances. You have heard that I am imprisoned and chained to a guard. But he says, don't think that this is uh, a setback. Don't call this a setback. Actually, I want to let you in on a secret. This isn't a setback, but God is using this for his glory. He's using this to proclaim the gospel to people who have never even heard it. Paul would say here, uh, in a sense, in the, in the Josh translation, in verses uh, uh, 12 through, uh, let's see, about 18 here, Paul is saying, I used to go around and collect money to go on mission trips, and now uh, the Roman government's paying for me. And I'm sharing the gospel with everyone who's around me. Don't call this 
uh, affliction that I'm in, a setback, I'm using it, and God is using it for his own glory. Then Paul begins to open the curtains of his heart and begins to show the church at Philippi his heart and his passion for Christ. He says, uh, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Everything up until this point has been Paul speaking of himself or gratitude because of what they have done for him. And now Paul, for the first time, turns his gaze upon the Philippian church and gives them a command. In our passage today, beginning in verse 27, only... Only. It would be very easy for us to quickly move past this first word. But what Paul is saying here is that what he's about to say next is of utmost priority. Above all, Philippian church, do what I'm just about to tell you. Regardless of anything else, do what I'm about to tell you. In the, in the Greek, this word only means this and nothing else. So what Paul is about to reveal to the church, what he's about to say to First Baptist Church of West Memphis is a matter of priority. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Let's pause and think about that for a moment. Does your life reflect gratitude for what Christ has done for you. Let's take this morning. Has your attitude and behavior and words, has your time this morning reflected in your life that you want to be counted worthy of the sacrifice that Jesus made for you? Paul says here, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This let your manner of life is one word in the Greek. The root word of that word is the word polis. Okay, so you, you may recognize this. So if I said metropolis or Minneapolis, it means city, and it was a city-state. It was the place where citizens had their utmost loyalty, they had pledged their loyalty to the city-state that they were in. That city-state was going to provide for them. This community of people would provide for one another and would protect one another. And so, in a sense, what Paul is saying here is that we ought to be, we ought to live our lives as worthy citizens of heaven. Gordon Fee says it like this, like Philippi was a colony of Rome, the church at Philippi is a colony of heaven. And we ought uh, to live our lives in such a way that we are living a life that is worthy, that our citizenship, that our, that our responsibilities, that our actions, that our words, that our attitudes, that everything shows that we are grateful for the gospel, that we want to live a life that is worthy of the gospel. And so the title of our message today is this, Only Live Worthy. Only Live Worthy. Now, how do we do that? Paul lists four ways in which he expects the church at Philippi and the church at First Baptist in West Memphis, yes, 
us today how we are to live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. And is that your desire, church? Is that your desire to live worthy of the gospel? That Christ would look upon you and your life and he would have said, worth it. Worth it. How do we do that? Verse 27, let's begin at the very beginning again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. If you're taking notes today, uh, the first point that we have today is that we must stand firm together. Stand firm together. That's the command of Paul here. If you are to be worthy, I want to, I want to see whether I'm present there with you or whether I'm away. I will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. Standing firm here means to hold your ground. It's a defensive. It's, it's, a, it's like a military position. You're braced. You're ready for whatever's coming your way. You're, you've got your feet planted on the ground. You're going to hold your ground. So Paul commands us to stand firm together. In a wavering world, things are ever-changing. We, the church, ought to be those rock-solid people who are standing firm and to stand firm together, I want you to see first we must have something firm to stand upon. Our ability to stand firm together is only as reliable as the foundation on which we stand. And I want to tell you something, we have a very strong foundation. The foundation that we have is the very Word of God, the, the Bible. I'm so thankful that today uh, we have God's Word for us, amen, this infallible, inerrant word that we can come to and we can read of the character of God and his commands for us. And I'm sad to say that even in pulpits across the world today, even those who would claim to be evangelical, I would say that there are some even today who are moving away from the inerrancy and the sufficiency of the Bible. In the late 70s and 80s, the Southern Baptist Convention went uh, through a, a period of time that we call the conservative resurgence or the battle for the Bible, and their battle lines were drawn. As Southern Baptists were in a trend of drifting toward the left theologically and drifting toward liberal principles which were denying the the authenticity and uh, the efficacy of the Word of God, Southern Baptists stood up and fought for the inerrancy and the infallibility of the Bible. I'm thankful that so many years ago that battle was won and that in our seminaries and in our schools and across Southern Baptist entities, we enforce the inerrancy, the infallibility of the Bible. But I would say that today, that war has begun yet again. The inerrancy, the infallibility, yet, yet even the sufficiency of the Scripture is a battle that we are fighting even today. And I'll say this, as a church, what we believe does not rest first upon the resurrection of Jesus, which some would have you believe. 
which some prominent preachers today would say, just root everything that we believe in the resurrection of Jesus. I would say to you, the resurrection of Jesus is of vital importance to believers, but it only finds its meaning in the scripture, in the Bible. The resurrection, oh, thank you, Lord, for the resurrection and that we might have life with you. But God has given us his word, and this is our foundation. Where the Bible says we go, we go. Where the Bible says we stop, we stop. I want to tell you, it is my hope and prayer as your pastor to always let you know that the Bible is our foundation. And you don't have to follow me at all. As a matter of fact, should, should uh, uh, First Baptist Church of West Memphis one day decide that the Bible is not their foundation? And should my family and friends all decide one day that the Bible is not their foundation? Me and the Lord make a majority. And I'm glad to be standing on God's Word. We have a firm foundation in God's Word. You don't have to go to the worldly philosophies to try to figure out how to improve or to fix your life or how to uh, atone for or correct sin in your life. My friends, by the Holy Spirit, we can come to God's Word. It is a firm foundation. Jesus says so in Matthew chapter 7 when he's speaking of the man who built his house upon the rock. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine, it's like that man who built his house upon the rock. If we're going to stand firm together, we must stand firm upon something. So what do we stand firm upon? God's word. But standing firm together is also kind of spoken of in a negative connotation. It means that we must stand against something. Standing against something means that you're going to have enemies. And maybe you're like me and you're a people pleaser. You li I, I really got in the long, wrong line of work, didn't I? Right? If you're like me, you want to be a people pleaser. You want people to like you. Right? You want people to look at you and think that you're a good person and you never do anything wrong. Right? That's never going to happen. It's never going to happen in my life. Right? The ship has sailed. That will never happen in my life. But if you're like me, you want to be your fleshly tendency is to be a people pleaser. But if we're going to stand firm together, it means we stand firm against some things. What do we stand against? Ephesians chapter 6 and verses 10 through 13, Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Standing firm means we stand firm against certain things. We stand firm against the enemy. We stand firm against his uh, uh, against his uh, uh, priorities. We stand firm against his philosophies. And so we as a church must stand against certain things. We stand against evil. We stand against sin. We stand against immorality. But we also stand for something. We have something to stand for. The gospel. We stand for righteousness. We stand for that which is right. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, 
therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. We stand firm in the gospel and upon God's word. In this text here, we see that not only do we have something firm to stand upon, something to stand against, something to stand for, but we have someone to stand with. What does he say here in the text? That I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. You've heard me say this time and time again, you will not find the word Christian in the singular in the New Testament. God has given us new life, and he has given us his church, and we are to do this life together. If we want to be counted worthy of the gospel, we must stand firm in one mind, in one spirit together to be unified it's my greatest prayer, most frequent prayer for First Baptist Church of West Memphis. Lord, keep us unified. Now, there's a difference between unity and uniformity. I'm glad that there are not uh, two to 300 Joshes in here today, right? Brother Johnny said amen first, okay? <laughs> my wife's in the nursery. If she had been in here, boy, the hallelujah chorus would have come on out. Thank God there's not 100, 200, 300 Joshua's in here today. God's created us uniquely. He's created us differently. But here the scripture says that we should all be of one spirit, knit together in the gospel. We have different likes, different dislikes, different backgrounds, different cultures, different languages, and yet we've all been united together in the gospel of Jesus Christ, standing upon the truth of God's word. Paul says, do you want to be counted worthy of the gospel? Stand firm together. Secondly, in verse 27, he's going to tell us to strive for the gospel together. Let's begin in the middle of verse 27. That I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Again, he's speaking of us doing this together with one mind, right? We're working together as the church that we would strive together. That word means to compete or to do this in concert with one another. It's a, there's an idea of a competition or of adversity. You know, we don't advertise that as Christians today. Modern-day Christians are always looking for an escape from strife in the world, so that vocabulary, that term doesn't find its home in our hearts and on our lips very often, but it's very common throughout the Scripture that in this life, as we live for Jesus, there's going to be a lot of blood, sweat, and tears as we strive side by side together for the gospel. And let me just say how wonderful it is that we don't have to do it alone. Isn't it good that as we're striving for the gospel, I've got my brothers and sisters over here praying for me, and I've got my brothers and sisters over here praying for me, and we're locking arms together, and we're charging the gates of hell together, and we're living for Jesus together. We're keeping one another accountable together. Here Paul says that we're to strive together for the gospel. Now this means two things. This means, firstly, that we're striving together for the faith in us. Doubt arises pretty easily in our hearts. Am I right? Have you ever had doubt arise in your heart? How in the world can I be saved? 
I've thought these things, I've done these things, I've said these things. How in the world can I be saved? We're to strive together for the gospel in us. Yes, the Bible tells us that, uh, uh, Jesus tells us, uh, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We can rest in his salvation. We have to do nothing to earn salvation, but together we strive for the gospel in our own lives. Luke chapter 13, verse 24 Jesus says, strive to enter through the narrow door. Romans 15 and verse 30, strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 12, strive to excel in building up the church. The prize is worth the push. The faith in our lives is worth the pain that we go through together. We're striving together. That means it's not always easy. It's not always easy to strive together for the gospel. Sometimes it's easier just to lay down and just let life roll you over. And perhaps you, this week you say that, that feels exactly what I've done this past week. I've just laid down and let the world roll over me. But the Bible says here that if we want to count ourselves as worthy of the sacrifice that Jesus made, that together we are to strive for the faith of the gospel in us. I care about your salvation, and you should care about my salvation. And that's why when there's sin in our lives, we keep one another accountable. That's why our conversation should be more than just about the weather, or more than just about sports. Hey, what's God doing in your life this week? How can I pray for you this week? Lifting one another up, praying for one another, striving together for the faith that God has placed in us. But it also means that we're striving together for the furtherance of the gospel. We're contending together for the furtherance of the gospel. That's why we sacrifice the things that we have so that we can go out and proclaim the gospel. When you go out and share the gospel with people around you, you are sacrificing your pride. You are sacrificing what others may think of you. You're striving together that by all means the gospel may advance. That's why we as a church support missionaries. Missionaries like Todd and Erica Carroll. You know, if, if you as a family are not uh, uh, personally supporting a missionary, I want to encourage you families in the church to not only support the local church as God has commanded you through the tithe, but be sacrificial with your giving to give above and beyond to those, to those things that advance the gospel. Supporting missionaries at sacrifice. We may not have the best cars. We may not have the best things that everyone else may have, but we're investing our finances and our resources in things that matter. Striving together for the furtherance of the gospel. At the end of our service, we're going to have a, a vote. We're going to vote together on the direction of the facilities of our church. And several weeks ago, after the presentation, uh, we were sitting around the breakfast table and we were having our Bible study in the morning. Bible studies are always filled with reading a psalm and threatening to spank a child at least seven times. It's seven verses, you can bet that you're going to say, I said, sit down, right? And then you say, restore to me the joy of my salvation. <laughs> we're sitting around, and we're about to pray, and I said, guys, I want 
as a family, I want us to pray about, if this is the direction that the church moves in, I want us to pray about how we as a family are going to sacrifice to give to this cause so that the church uh, uh, can move forward in this direction. What, what can we sacrifice as a family? So we sat there for just a few moments, and Bo got up from the table, and he walked off, which is normally a, a no-no, but we, he was up to something. He's always up to something, but this time it seemed like it was something good, and Bo went back to his room, and he walked back in uh, to our table, and he set out one of his favorite toys, and he said, Daddy, I can sell this. I said, okay. What would you do with that money? I'd give it to the church. A sacrifice from a little boy, just a little toy that meant a whole lot to him. Sacrificing so that we can advance the gospel. So together, church, we're to strive to advance the gospel, to sacrifice the things that we want so that the gospel may, uh, may go throughout the entire world so that we can support those who, who share the gospel and share the gospel ourselves. Well, Paul says that if we want to be worthy citizens of the gospel, that we're to stand firm together. We're to strive for the gospel together. Thirdly, in verse 28, we're to be courageous together. Verse 28, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. We're to be courageous together. Isn't that the message of every angel who comes to give a good message uh, uh, to God's people? Do not be afraid. You'll see it with Mary uh, when Gabriel comes to her. She's frightened. She's afraid by the angel, and the angel says, do not be afraid. When the angel appears before Zechariah in the temple, what does Zechariah do? He gets afraid. The angel says, do not be afraid. The Bible has commanded us as God's people to not be afraid, and we have good reason to not be afraid. Our Father is in charge. He's on his throne. Everything works out for our good and his glory. Why should we be afraid? And yet, very often, we get timid. And that's the word that's spoken of here. It's timidity. It's a word that would be used in the Greek if a horse would see a stick and think that it's a snake and it was frightened easily and it would buck the soldier off. Paul says that you would not be timid in anything by your opponents. To be sure, the church has opponents today. The gospel has opponents today. And it would be easy for us to be timid. After all, well, for me, let's just, let me just speak for myself then. I'm not near as eloquent as those who would bring their case against Christianity. And I'll tell you, I'm not near as intelligent as some of those folks who may bring their case against Christianity. But I don't have to be afraid because I know who the King of Kings and who the Lord of Lords is. We can be courageous together. It, number one, it signifies their destruction. When you think about all those who've caused harm and who've persecuted the church over the years, when they have seen the courage of those men and those women who have gone to their deaths not renouncing Jesus, it has made an impact and changed their lives. We are to be courageous together. It signifies their destruction, and it signifies our salvation. Because courage does not come from us, does it? 
Now, there may be some real courageous men and women in here today, some very valiant brothers and sisters here today who are bold and courageous, but for the most of us, uh, timidity is the default. But that courage, when it wells up, when the Spirit places that courage in our lives, when it's cultivated in our lives, it's a sign of our salvation. Not by ourselves, but put there from God. We're to be courageous together. Finally, I want you to see that we're to suffer together in verses 29 through 30. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now here that I still have. You, you want to live a life that's worthy of the gospel? Well, you're not going to want to hear this. We have to suffer together. That's another modern-day Christian cuss word. We don't use the word suffer. As a matter of fact, we've robbed it from every one of the texts that it's in the Bible, and it's prominent throughout the Scripture regarding God's people. We've robbed it from all of those texts, and we put it in very small print down at the bottom of our pamphlet when we share the gospel. We say, when you come to know Jesus, all of your suffering is over. But in fact, when you serve Jesus, there's a new suffering that begins. God explains it throughout the New Testament. Jesus explained it to his disciples explicitly that there will be suffering and persecution in this life. In 1 Timothy, Paul writes to young Timothy, and he says over and over again, do not be ashamed of me, but share in my sufferings. Again, he says later in uh, the book of 1 Timothy, suffer as a good soldier. Believers, we are to suffer Together, there's a certainty of suffering, a certainty of suffering. First Peter 4, verses 1 through 2, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. And then back in our text today, it's not a matter of if you suffer. He says it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also you should suffer for his sake. I want you to know, believers, today that any time from any pulpit that you've heard that your suffering is going to be finished with when you come to know Jesus, that's been untrue. There will be suffering. It's guaranteed. But there's a grace of suffering. Notice how he puts this in verse 29. For it has been granted to you. That word is also interpreted graced. There's a grace of suffering. Let me tell you what I mean. Uh, the last few months in my walk with Jesus have been tumultuous. I mean, I'm preaching on joy, and I'm saying, Lord, I'm preaching on choose joy, and for the first time, it, it feels like in a long time, I've got this assault on joy in my life, and I've got these things that, you know, in my heart that are, that are going on. I'm just praying over and asking God for, for wisdom. God, what's going on? I read a Bible study last week. It reminded me of this. When we're going through these periods of suffering, it just draws us closer to Jesus. What, what makes you value health? What makes you value a good meal? 
What makes you value rest and sleep? Is it not sickness? Is it not hunger that makes you enjoy uh, food and, and truly value a meal that is laid before you? Is it not exhaustion that makes you really, really value rest? And the same way, when we're suffering in this life, what God is allowing to happen in our lives is for our good because what the suffering that is going on in our lives is making us remember that I'm not going to find joy in these things. That ultimately my gaze ought to be heavenward and waiting for him and setting my eyes upon him. There's a grace of suffering. And so I've learned in these last few months uh, as I've been going through these different things in my own heart and in my own life that when I go through these periods of of spiritual suffering, and obviously I'm not physically suffering in any capacity, but as I'm going through this spiritual suffering, I've learned to smile and say, you're right, Lord, I need you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for this difficulty. Paul will say the same thing when he has a uh, when he has this thorn in the flesh, a great difficulty given to him in his, in his life. And he's surrendered his life to the Lord, but he's got this thorn in the flesh, this pain that is, that is really causing him a lot of problems. And he goes to the Lord three times, and he says, Lord, please take this thorn away from me. And each time the Lord responds to him, my grace is sufficient for you. For in your weakness, my power, my strength is perfected. And so we as God's people should cry out, Lord, if in my weakness your strength and your power is on full display, then let me be weak. Then let me have suffering. Then let me have difficulties. Because what matters is not that I feel good, but that I'm a worthy citizen of the one who died for me. We've relegated suffering to uh, a byword amongst Christians. We should embrace it. Now you say, Josh, you're saying that and you've not been what I've been through. No, you're right. I haven't. And I have not walked through the troubles that you've walked through, the difficulties that you've walked through. Those probably are unique to you. But I know who has. And he says, his grace is sufficient for you. Trust him. You can write down, for lack of time, I won't read these passages, but you can write down Romans 5, 3 through 5. Uh, but, but I do want to read this, Romans 8, 18. Paul says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. All the suffering that you and I have been through, when we first get to heaven in that first momentless moment, we will have said, worth it. Amen. Worth it. Finally, in looking at suffering together, I want you to look at the sake of suffering. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, he didn't just save us, but he saved us for a purpose. And in our life, we're going to endure persecution, we're going to endure suffering, but it has a purpose, it has a sake. And here Paul says, if you want to be worthy citizens, understand this, that the light momentary affliction that we're going through, and he's saying this from a prison cell, he's saying this from a man who's been beaten, he says that it has been granted to us for the sake of Christ. 
Do you want to be a worthy citizen of heaven? Do you want to express gratitude? Lord, thank you for saving me. Well, as a church, we, we suffer together, go through those difficult times. We show courage together. In the face of our enemies, we stand strong and we stand tall. We strive together for the faith of the gospel in one another and throughout our community. And we stand firm together. Welcome to First Importance, the official podcast of the preaching and teaching ministries of First Baptist Church, West Memphis, Arkansas. Our prayer is that you will be blessed and encouraged today by this message.